16. Obi sinking into the ground. When it reaches the level of the earth the end of the world will come. A romantic story is associated with Mad's Cross. In Wigan, Lancashire, Sir William Bradshake was a great warrior, and went crusading for ten years, leaving his beautiful wife, Mabel, alone at Hake Hall. A dastard Welsh knight compelled her to marry him, telling her that her husband was dead, and treated her cruelly, but Sir William came back to the hall disguised as a palmer. Mabel, seeing in him some resemblance to her former husband, what sir, and was beaten by the Welshman. Sir William made himself known to his tenants, and raising a troop, marched to the hall. The Welsh knight fled, but Sir William followed him and slew him at noon, for which act he was outlawed a year and a day. The lady was enjoined by her confessor to do penance by going once a week, barefoot and barelegged, to a cross near Wigan, two miles from the hall, and it is called Mad's Cross to this day. You can see in Wigan Church the monument of Sir William and his lady, which tells this sad story, and also the cross at least, all that remains of it the steps, a pedestal, and part of the shaft in Standisgate, to a witness if I lie. It is true that Sir William was born ten years after the last of the Crusades had ended, but what does that matter? He was probably fighting for his king, Edward I.I., against the Scots, or he was languishing a prisoner in some dungeon. There was plenty of fighting in those days for those who loved it, and where was the Englishman then who did not love to fight for his king and country, or seek for martial glory in other lands? If an ungrateful country did not provide him with enough work for his good sword and ponderous lance, Such are some of the stories that cluster round these crosses. It is a sad pity that so many should have been allowed to disappear. More have fallen owing to the indifference and apathy of the people of England in the 18th and 19th centuries than to the wanton and iconoclastic destruction of the Puritans. They are holy relics of primitive Christianity. On the lonely mountainsides the tired traveler found in them a guide and friend, a director of his ways and an uplifter of his soul. In the busy marketplace they reminded the trader of the sacredness of bargains and of the duty of honest dealing. Holy truths were proclaimed from their steps. They connected by a close and visible bond religious duties with daily life, and not only as objects of antiquarian interest, but as memorials of the religious feelings, habits, and customs of our forefathers. Are they worthy of careful preservation? Chapter XII Stocks Whipping Posts and old-time punishments near the village cross almost invariably stood the parish stocks, instruments of rude justice, the use of which has only just passed away. The oldest inhabitant can remember well the old stocks standing in the village green and can tell of the men who suffered in them. Many of these instruments of torture still remain, silent witnesses of old-time ways. You can find them in multitudes of remote villages in all parts of the country and vastly uncomfortable it must have been to have one's feet set in the stocks. A well-known artist who delights in painting monks a few years ago placed the portly model who usually sat for him in the village stocks of Suham, Berkshire, and painted a picture of the monk in disgrace. The model declared that he was never so uncomfortable in his life and his legs and back ached for weeks afterwards. To make the penalty more realistic the artist might have prevailed upon some village urchins to torment the sufferer by throwing stones refuse, or garbage at him, some village maids to mock and jeer at him, and some mischievous men to distract his ears with inharmonious sounds, in an old print of two men in the stocks I have seen a malicious wretch scraping piercing noises out of a fiddle and the victims trying to drown the hideous sounds by putting their fingers into their ears, a few hours in the stocks was no light penalty, these stocks had a venerable history, 
they date back to Saxon times and appear in drawings of that period. It is a pity that they should be destroyed, but pearl corporations decide that they interfere with the traffic of a utilitarian age and relegate them to a museum or doom them to be cut up as fagots. Country folk think nothing of antiquities, and a local estate agent or the village publican will make away with this relic of antiquity and give the old rubbish to a widow smith for firing. Hence a large number have disappeared, and it is wonderful that so many have hitherto escaped. Let the eyes of squires and local antiquaries be ever on the watch lest those that remain are allowed to vanish. By ancient law every town or village was bound to provide a pair of stocks. It was a sign of dignity, and if the village had the seat for malefactors, a constable, and a pound for stray cattle, it could not be mistaken for a mere hamlet. The stocks have left their mark on English literature. Shakespeare frequently alludes to them. Falstaff, in The Merry Wives of Windsor, says that but for his admirable dexterity of what the knave constable had set me I the stocks, I the common stocks, what needs all that and a pair of stocks in the town, says loose in the comedy of errors, like silly beggars, who sitting in stocks refuge their shame, occurs in Richard I. I and in Kindler Cornwall exclaims, fetch forth the stocks, you stubborn ancient knave, act of parliament, 1405, who were the culprits who thus suffered, Falstaff states that he only just escaped the punishment of being set in the stocks for a witch, which is usually received severe of justice, but stocks were often used for keeping prisoners safe until they were tried and condemned, and possibly Shakespeare alludes in this passage only to the preliminaries of a harsher ordeal. Drunkards were the common defaulters who appeared in the stocks, and by an act of to James I they were required to endure six hours incarceration with a fine of five shillings. Vagrants always received harsh treatment unless they had a license, and the corporation records of Hungerford reveal the fact that they were always placed in the pillory and whipped. The stocks, pillory, and whipping post were three different implements of punishment, but, as was the case at Wallingford, Berkshire, they were sometimes allied and combined. The stocks secured the feet, the pillory held endurance vile, the head and the hands, while the whipping post imprisoned the hands only by clamps on the sides of the post. In the constable's accounts of Hungerford we find such items as, PD4 chicken brace for the pillory 00.02.00 PD4 mending the pillory 00.00.06 PD the widow tanner for iron gear for the whipping post March 6, 2000. Whipping was a very favorite pastime at this old Berkshire town. This entry will suffice. PD2 John Savage for his extraordinary pains this year and whipping of several persons 00.05.00. John Savage was worthy of his name. But the good folks of Hungerford tempered mercy with justice and usually gave a monetary consolation to those who suffered from the lash. Thus we read, gave a poor man that was whipped and sent from the thinch to to thinch 00.00.04. Women were whipped at Hungerford. As we find that the same John Savage received to D. For whipping Dorothy Miller. All this was according to law. The first whipping act was passed in 1531 Henry VII reigned. And according to this barbarous piece of legislation the victim was stripped naked and tied to a cart tail. Dragged through the streets of the town. And whipped till his body was bloody. In Elizabeth's time the cart tail went out of fashion and a whipping post was substituted. And only the upper part of the body was exposed. The tramp question was as troublesome in the 17th century as it is today. We can find them in workhouse cells and make them break stones or pick oakum. Whipping was the solution adopted by our forefathers. We have seen John Savage wielding his whip, which still exists among the curiosities at Hungerford, 
that Barnsley in 1632 Edward Wood was paid Eid, for whipping of three wanderers. Ten years earlier Richard White received only Eid, for performing the like service for six wanderers. Mr. W. Andrews has collected a vast store of curious anecdotes on the subject of whippings, recorded in his bygone punishments, to which the interested reader is referred. The story he tells of the brutality of Judge Jeffries may be repeated. This infamous and inhuman judge sentenced a woman to be whipped, and said, Hangman, I charge you to pay particular attention to this lady. Scourge her soundly. Man, scourge her till her blood runs down. It is Christmas, a cold time for Madame to strip. See that you warm her shoulders thoroughly. It was not until 1791 that the whipping of female vagrants was expressly forbidden by Act of Parliament. Stocks have been used in quite recent times, so late as 1872, at Newbury, one Mark Tuck, a devoted disciple of John Barleycorn, suffered this penalty for his misdeeds. He was a rag-and-bone dealer, and knew well the inside of reading jail. Notes and queries contains an account of the proceedings, and states that he was fixed in the stocks for drunkenness and disorderly conduct in the parish church on Monday evening. Twenty-six years had elapsed since the stocks were last used and their reappearance created no little sensation and amusement, several hundreds of persons being attracted to the spot where they were fixed. Tuck was seated on a stool, and his legs were secured in the stocks at a few minutes past one o'clock, and as the church clock, immediately facing him, chimed each quarter, he uttered expressions of thankfulness, and seemed anything but pleased at the laughter and derision of the crowd. Four hours having passed, Tuck was released and by a little stratagem on the part of the police he escaped without being interfered with by the crowd. History of Hungerford, by W. Money, page 38, Notes and Queries, 4th Series, X page 6, Sunday drinking during divine service provided in many places victims for the stocks. So late as half a century ago it was the custom for the church wardens to go out of church during the morning service on Sundays and visit the public houses to see if any persons were tippling there and those found in flagrant delicto were immediately placed in the stocks. So arduous did the church wardens find this duty that they felt obliged to regale themselves at the alehouses while they made their tour of inspection, and thus rendered themselves liable to the punishment which they inflicted on others. Mr. Rigby, postmaster at Crosstown, Lancashire, who was 73 years of age in 1899, remembered these Sunday morning searches, and had seen drunkards sitting in the stocks which were fixed near the southern step of the village cross. Mr. Rigby, when a boy, helped to pull down the stocks, which were then much dilapidated. A certain Richard Cotam, called Cockledick, was the last man seen in them. Ancient Crosses and Holy Wells of Lancashire, by H. Taylor, FSA page 37. The same morning perambulating of alehouses was carried on at Skipton, the church wardens being headed by the old beadle, an imposing personage who wore a cocked hat and an official coat trimmed with gold, and carried in majestic style a trident staff, a terror to evildoers, at least to those of tender years, that Beverly the stocks still preserved in the Minster were used as late as 1853, Jim Brigham, guilty of Sunday tippling, and discovered by the church wardens in their rounds, was the last victim, some sympathizer placed in his mouth a lighted pipe of tobacco, but the constable in charge hastily snatched it away, James Gamble's, for gambling on Sunday, was confined in the Stanningley Stocks, Yorkshire, for six hours in 1860. The Stocks and Village Well remained still at Standish, near the Cross, 
and also the stone cheeks of those articles stone green bearing the date 1656, at Shore Cross, near Birtdale. The stocks remain, also the iron ones at Thornton, Lancashire, described in Mrs. Blundell's novel in a North Country village, also at Formby they exist, though somewhat dilapidated. History of Skipton, W.H. Dawson, quoted in Bygone Punishments, page 199, whether by accident or design. The stocks frequently stand close to the principal inn in a village, as they were often used for the correction of the intemperate their presence was doubtless intended as a warning to the frequenters of the hostelry not to indulge too freely. Indeed, the sight of the stocks, pillory, and whipping post must have been a full deterrent to vice. An old writer states that he knew of the case of a young man who was about to annex a silver spoon, but on looking round and seeing the whipping post he relinquished his design. The writer asserts that though it lay immediately in the high road to the gallows, it had stopped many unadventurous young men in his progress thither. The ancient Lancashire town of Polton in the Filda has a fairly complete set of primitive punishment implements. Close to the cross stand the stocks with massive ironwork. The criminals, as usual, having been accustomed to sit on the lowest step of the cross, and on the other side of the cross is the rogues whipping post, a stone pillar about eight feet high on the sides of which are hooks to which the culprit was fastened. Between this and the cross stands another full feature of a Lancashire marketplace, the fish stones, an oblong raised slab for the display and sale of fish. In several places we find that movable stocks were in use, which could be brought out whenever occasion required. A set of these exists at Garston, Lancashire. The quotation already given from Kinlear, fetch forth the stocks, seems to imply that in Shakespeare's time they were movable. Beverly stocks were movable, and in notes and queries we find an account of a mob at Shrewsbury dragging around the town in the stocks an incorrigible rogue one Samuel Tisgill in the year 1851. The Rochdale stocks remain, but they are now in the churchyard, having been removed from the place where the markets were formerly held at church style. When these kind of objects have once disappeared it is rarely that they are ever restored. However, at West Derby this unusual event has occurred and five years ago the restoration was made. It appears that in the village there was an ancient pound or pinfold which had degenerated into an unsightly dust heap, and the old stocks had passed into private hands. The inhabitants resolved to turn the untidy corner into a garden, and the lady gave back the stocks to the village. An inscription records, to commemorate the long and happy reign of Queen Victoria and the coronation of King Edward VII. The site of the ancient pound of the Dukes of Lancaster and other lords of the manor of West Derby was enclosed and planted, and the village stocks set therein. Easter, 1904. This inscription records another item of vanishing England. Before the enclosure acts at the beginning of the last century there were in all parts of the country large stretches of infant land, and cattle often strayed far from their homes and presumed to graze on the open common lands of other villages. Each village had its pound keeper, who when he saw these asteroids, as the lawyers term the valuable animals that were found wandering in any manner or lordship, immediately drove them into the pound, if the owner claimed them, he had certain fees to pay to the pound keeper and the cost of the keep, if they were not claimed they became the property of the lord of the manor, but it was required that they should be proclaimed in the church and to market towns next adjoining the place where they were found, and a year and a day must have elapsed before they became the actual property of the lord. The possession of a pound was a sign of dignity for the village. Now that commons have been enclosed and waste lands reclaimed, stray cattle no longer cause excitement in the village. The pound keeper has gone, 
and too often the pound itself has disappeared. We had one in our village twenty years ago, but suddenly, before he could be remonstrated with, an estate agent, not caring for the trouble and cost of keeping it in repair, cleared it away, and its place knows it no more. In very many other villages similar happenings have occurred. Sometimes the old pound has been utilized by road surveyors as a convenient place for storing gravel for mending roads, and its original purpose is forgotten. It would be a pleasant task to go through the towns and villages of England to discover and to describe traces of these primitive implements of torture, but such a record would require a volume instead of a single chapter. In Berkshire we have several left to us. There is a very complete set at Wallingford, Killery, Stocks, and Whipping Post now stored in the museum belonging to Miss Hedges in the castle, but in western Berkshire they had nearly all disappeared. The last pair of stocks that I can remember stood at the entrance to the town of Wanage. They have only disappeared within the last few years. The whipping post still exists at the old town hall at Thuring, the staples being affixed to the side of the ancient lockup, known as the Black Hole, at Lynn, Cheshire. There are some good stocks by the cross in that village and many others may be discovered by the wandering antiquary, though their existence is little known and usually escapes the attention of the writers on local antiquities. As relics of primitive modes of administering justice, it is advisable that they should be preserved. Yet another implement of rude justice was the cooking or ducking stool, which exists in a few places. It was used principally for the purpose of correcting scolding women. Mr. Andrews, who knows all that can be known about old-time punishments, draws a distinction between the cooking and ducking stool, and states that the former originally was a chair of infamy where immoral women and scolds were condemned to sit with bare feet and head to endure the derision of the populace, and had no relation to any ducking in water, but it appears that later on the terms were synonymous, and several of these implements remain. This machine for quieting intemperate scolds was quite simple. A plank with a chair at one end was attached by an axle to a post which was fixed on the bank of a river or pond or on wheels, so that it could be run thither, the culprit was tied to the chair, and the other end of the plank was alternately raised or lowered so as to cause the immersion of the scold in the chilly water, a very effectual punishment, the form of the chair varies, the Leminster ducking stool is still preserved, and this implement was the latest in use, having been employed in 1809 for the ducking of Jenny Pipes, alias Jane Corrin, a common scold, by order of the magistrates, and also as late as 1817, but in this case the victim, one Sarah Leak, was only wheeled round the town in the chair, and not ducked, as the water in the Cumwater stream was too shallow for the purpose. The cost of making the stool appears in many corporation accounts, that at Hungerford must have been in pretty frequent use, as there are several entries for repairs in the constable's accounts. Thus we find the item under the year 1669, PD for the cooking stool January 10, 2000, and in 1676, PD for nails and workmanship about the stocks and cooking stool 00.07.00, the corporation of Hungerford is peculiar, the head official being termed the constable, who corresponded with the mayor in less original boroughs, at Kingston upon Thames in 1572 the accounts show the expenditure, the making of the cooking stool, 8s, 0d, iron work for the same, 3s, 0d, timber for the same, 7s, 6d, 3 brasses for the same and 3 wheels for s, 10d, l1 3s, 4d, we need not record similar items shown in the accounts of other boroughs, you will still find examples of this fearsome implement at Leicester in the museum, what Tom Bassett, 
the wheels of one in the church of St. Mary, Warwick, to at Plymouth, one of which was used in 1808, Kings Lynn, Norfolk, in the museum, Ipswich, Scarborough, Sandwich, Fordwich, and possibly some other places of which we have no record, we find in museums, but not in common use, another terrible implement for the curbing of the rebellious tongues of scolding women, it was called the Brank or Scold's Bridle, and probably came to us from Scotland with the Solomon of the North, whether the idea of it had been conveyed through the intercourse of that region with France, it is a sort of iron cage or framework helmet, which was fastened on the head, having a flat tongue of iron that was placed on the tongue of the victim and effectually restrained her from using it. Sometimes the iron tongue was embellished with spikes so as to make the movement of the human tongue impossible except with the greatest agony. Imagine the poor wretch with her head so encaged, her mouth cut and bleeding by this sharp iron tongue, none too gently fitted by her rough torturers, and then being dragged about the town amid the jeers of the populace, or chained to the pillory in the marketplace an object of ridicule and contempt. Happily this scene has vanished from vanishing England. Perhaps she was a loud-voiced termagant, perhaps nearly the ill-used wife of a drunken wretch, who well deserved her scolding, or the daring teller of home truths to some jack in office, who thus revenged himself. We had shrews and scolds still, happily they are restrained in a less barbarous fashion. You may still see some fearsome ranks in museums, reading, Leeds, York, Walton-on-Thames, Congleton, Stockport, Macclesfield, Warrington, Morpeth, Hamstall Rideware, in Staffordshire, Lichfield, Chesterfield now in possession of the Walsham family, Leicester, Dodding Park, Lincolnshire a very grotesque example, the Eshmolean Museum at Oxford, Ludlow, Shrewsbury, Oswestry, Whitchurch, Market Drayton, are some of the places which still possess Scold's Bridles. Perhaps it is wrong to infer from the fact that most of these are to be found in the counties of Cheshire, Staffordshire, and Shropshire, that the women of those shires were especially addicted to strong and abusive language. It may be only that antiquaries in those counties have been more industrious in unearthing and preserving these curious relics of a barbarous age. The latest recorded occasion of its use was at Congleton in 1824 when a woman named Anne Runcorn was condemned to endure the bridal for abusing and slandering the church wardens when they made their tour of inspection of the alehouses during the Sunday morning service. There are some excellent drawings of pranks, and full descriptions of their use, in Mr. Andrews's bygone punishments. Another relic of old-time punishments most gruesome of all are the jibby irons wherein the bones of some wretched breaker of the laws hung and rattled as the irons creaked and groaned when stirred by the breeze. Poor encouragement disorders. Our wise forefathers enacted that the bodies of executed criminals should be hanged in chains. At least this was a common practice that dated from medieval times, though it was not actually legalized until 1752. This act remained in force until 1834, and during the interval thousands of bodies were gibbeted and left creaking in the wind at Hangman's Corner or Gibbet Common, near the scene of some murder or outrage. It must have been ghostly and ghastly to walk along our country lanes and hear the dreadful noise, especially if the tradition were true that the wretch in his chains, each night took the pains, to come down from the gibbet and walk. In order to act as a warning to others the bodies were kept up as long as possible, and for this purpose were saturated with tar. On one occasion the gibbet was fired and the tar helped the conflagration, and a rapid and effectual cremation ensued. In many museums gibbet irons are preserved. Punishments in olden times were usually cruel. Did they act as deterrents to vice? 
Modern judges have found the use of the lash a cure for robbery from the person with violence. The sight of whipping posts and stocks, we learn, has stayed young men from becoming topers and drunkards. A prank certainly in one recorded case cured a woman from coarse invective and abuse. But what effect had the sight of the infliction of cruel punishments upon those who took part in them or witnessed them? It could only have tended to make cruel natures more brutal. Barbarous punishments, public hangings, cruel sports such as bull baiting, dog fighting, bear baiting, prize fighting and the like could not fail to exercise a bad influence on the populace, and where one was deterred from vice, thousands were brutalized and their hearts and natures hardened, where in vicious pleasures, crime, and lust found a congenial soil, but we can still see our stocks on the village greens, our branks, ducking stools, and pillories in museums, and remind ourselves of the customs of former days which had not so very long ago passed away. Act of Parliament 25 George I.I. Chapter XI The Old Bridges The passing away of the old bridges is a deplorable feature of vanishing England. Since the introduction of those terrible traction engines, monstrous machines that drag behind them a whole train of heavily laden trucks, few of these old structures that have survived centuries of ordinary use are safe from destruction. The immense weight of these road trains are enough to break the back of any of the old-fashioned bridges. Constantly notices have to be set up stating, this bridge is only sufficient to carry the ordinary traffic of the district, and traction engines are not allowed to proceed over it. Then comes an outcry from the proprietors of locomotives demanding bridges suitable for their convenience. County councils and district councils are worried by their importunities, and soon the venerable structures are doomed, and an iron girder bridge hideous in every particular replaces one of the most beautiful features of our village. When the sunning bridges that span the Thames were threatened a few years ago, English artists, such as Mr. Leslie and Mr. Holman Hunt, strove manfully for their defense. The latter wrote, The nation, without doubt, is in serious danger of losing faith in the testimony of our poets and painters to the exceptional beauty of the land which has inspired them. The poets, from Chaucer to the last of his true British successors, with one voice enlarge on the overflowing sweetness of England, her hills and dales, her pastures with sweet flowers, and the loveliness of her silver streams. It is the cherishing of the wholesome enjoyments of daily life that has implanted in the sons of England love of home, goodness of nature, and sweet reasonableness, and has given strength to the thews and sinews of her children, enabling them to defend her land, her principles, and her prosperity. With regard to the three sunning bridges, parts of them have been already rebuilt with iron fittings in recent years and no disinterested reasonable person can see why they could not be easily made sufficient to carry all existing traffic. If the bridges were to be widened in the service of some disproportionate vehicles it is obvious that the traffic such enlarged bridges are intended to carry would be put forward as an argument for demolishing the exquisite old bridge over the main river which is the glory of this exceptionally picturesque and well-ordered village, and this is a matter of which even the most utilitarian would soon see the evil in the diminished attraction of the river not only to Englishmen, but to colonials and Americans who had across the sea read widely of its beauty. Remonstrances must look ahead, and can only now be of avail in recognition of future further danger. We are called upon to plead the cause for the whole of the beauty-loving England, and of all river-loving people in particular. Gallantly does the great painter express the views of artists, and such vandalism is as obnoxious to antiquaries as it is to artists and lovers of the picturesque. Many of these old bridges date from medieval times, and are relics of antiquity that can ill be spared. 
Brick is a material as nearly imperishable as any that man can build with. There is hardly any limit to the life of a brick or stone bridge, whereas an iron or steel bridge requires constant supervision. The oldest iron bridge in this country at Colbrookdale, in Shropshire has failed after 123 years of life. It was worn out by old age, whereas the Roman bridge at Rimini, and the medieval ones at St. Ives, Bradford-on-Avon, and countless other places in this country and abroad, are in daily use and are likely to remain serviceable for many years to come, unless these ponderous trains break them down. The interesting bridge which crosses the River Conway at Lanroost was built in 1636 by Sir Richard Wynne, then the owner of Gwitter Castle, from the designs of Inigo Jones, like many others. It is being injured by traction trains carrying unlimited weights. Happily the Society for the Protection of Ancient Buildings heard the plaint of the old bridge that groaned under its heavy burdens and cried aloud for pity. The Society listened to its pleading, and carried its petition to the Carmarthen County Council, with excellent results. This enlightened council decided to protect the bridge and save it from further harm. The building of bridges was anciently regarded as a charitable and religious act and guilds and brotherhoods existed for their maintenance and reparation. At Maidenhead there was a notable bridge, for the sustenance of which the Guild of St. Andrew and St. Mary Magdalene was established by Henry VI in 1452. An early bridge existed here in the 13th century, a grant having been made in 1298 for its repair. A bridge master was one of the officials of the corporation, according to the charter granted to the town by James I.I. The old bridge was built of wood and supported by piles. No wonder that people were terrified at the thought of passing over such structures in dark nights and stormy weather. There was often a bridge chapel, as on the old Caversham Bridge, wherein they said their prayers, and perhaps made their wills, before they ventured to cross. Some towns owe their existence to the making of bridges. It was so at Maidenhead. It was quite a small place, a cluster of cottages, but Camden tells us that after the erection, 